Okay, welcome uh, once again to another Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast, and I'm your host, Captain Kevin Smith, and I am glad to be here. Uh, we are, uh, this is right after Christmas. We have, uh, did, did we take a week off for Christmas? I think we did, yes. Okay, so we are. we have returned from our Christmas uh, break, Christmas holidays, spent Christmas with some of our family members, and it was great. Hope, hopefully, all of you out there have experienced a great Christmas, uh, and we need some we need some good news and good cheer as well. Family is important. And um, before we kick off the show, I was just uh, let me let me share something with you. I was thinking about this. Uh, recently, you know, as a retired naval officer and a um, combat-trained warrior, what, why was I doing that and what was going on? Uh, certainly, we were protecting the Constitution of the United States. And, but for what ultimate purpose? And I begin to think about this sort of like philosophically, what was the ultimate purpose of protecting and defending and upholding the Constitution of the United States? And my way of thinking is that the ultimate purpose was was to protect the family, the American family. That That's the way I kind of see it now, uh, you know, looking back on my life from this perspective— I think the ultimate reason was the protection of and the, and the pre- preservation of the American family. And I'm not the only one, by the way, that's talking about this. If you take a look at what's going on in the national discourse, I think you will agree with me that more and more uh, people are discussing the value of the family, the value of the family unit, the value of having a family, and uh, the value of creating a society that is family-centric. Without a family, we will cease to exist as a nation, as a country, as a people, and and that's pretty well uh, an acknowledged fact right now. Okay, so... uh, that's a little bit of a diversion there from from the show, but that's uh, kind of like uh, uh, the thing I've been thinking about over this holiday period. All right, so um, this is a Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast. We are a radio show on Red State Talk Radio, and we are a podcast uh, on most podcast platforms that we know of, um, uh, a whole bunch of them. Uh, you can find us pretty much everywhere if you want to listen to us on a podcast format. You can go to our website as well, throttleupradio.com, and that has all of it. Uh, we do have a YouTube channel, Throttle Up as a YouTube channel. We're going to start activating that and posting uh, videos on that after the first of the year, Uh so we're going to start, that's sort of like uh, the other thing we're going to be doing in 2024 on a regular basis. What else do I need to talk about? I'm here with my great audio engineer, and she keeps me on track and does all of the necessary stuff behind the scenes and make sure that this, uh, make sure we pull this thing off and it's high quality every week. We try very hard to do that. Uh, you're going to ask me a question here pretty quick, right? So, No, not quite. Um, and so what else do I need to say? Oh, we have a new book out, uh, Sonic Warrior, Chronicles of a Top Gun Pioneer. And, of course, we are on Substack as well. So you can go to Substack. It's an app or a platform. It's a platform for writers primarily, but it's also designed to be reader-friendly. Uh, and it's a, it's kind of a new thing, but it is growing in popularity quite a lot, and we are glad to be on the uh, Substack platform as well. And we write a short article every week, or almost every week, 
on that, uh, and that's getting some uh, quite a bit of attention right um, already. So that's the administrative stuff. So uh, my audio engineer, my great audio engineer, is going to ask me this question as we kick off the, the show for this week. Here goes. Okay, hello, Kevin, and uh, hello to your uh, listening audience. Okay, we learn to acquire, operate, and maintain military equipment. Often, this is referred to as combat weapons and systems. But what else do we need to achieve? What else do we need to do to achieve mission success? And win. Okay, uh, great question. And uh, this is something that sort of like has been brewing on the back burner for quite some time. I just came back from uh, a, uh, a speaking engagement at Johns Hopkins University, and we talked a lot about it. Uh, we talked quite a bit about this uh, issue. Now, my, my proposition is a little bit. Um, uh, outside the box, maybe way outside the box, my proposition is, I guess you could say it's even uh, radical, but here goes. Uh, uh, this, is, this is what I've been, uh, my position has been this way for a very long period of time, not, uh, not that I have not received criticism along the way, of course I have, uh, that just sort of like goes with the territory. But my proposition, my position is that we need to be and always should have been warrior-centric, not hardware-centric. Okay. Now, there's a lot of discussion going on right now about uh, what kind of tactical airplanes do we need to have in our armed forces? Uh, what kind of vertical lift? What kind of long-range stuff? What kind of transports? What kind of tankers? What kind of fighters? What kind of attack airplanes and electronic warfare airplanes? And on and on and on and on. Okay, so everything is sort of like a hodgepodge of hardware. And that I guess I guess that's somewhat inevitable, but but as i as i pointed out recently in some of my um uh substack postings and substack short articles that experience is that we either win or lose on the battlefield because of the skill of the warrior that we have in our armed forces that is really the bottom line that's how we win. It's a skill. Now, the skill is uh, related to, but it it is not directly related to the weapon system that you're operating. The skill goes beyond that. Mere operating a technological weapon system goes far beyond that. We're going to be talking about that today. Um, as we go forward. So what my proposal is and, and uh, my position is as we go into 2024, we start, we return to our, to our fundamental roots, if you will, or, or we return back toward the human and make it a human-centric system not a technological wizardry kind of a thing. We are spending too much time in the technological basket. Uh, we need to get out of that rut, and we need to move uh, once again into the human basket or the humanistic uh, or take a humanistic approach uh, I call it a warrior centric. The warrior is the human. That is the 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 uh, the the warfare specialist that we have in our military on the front lines at the tip of the spear, doing what needs to be do, done 
uh, to preserve and protect the Constitution of the United States of America. And so that's going to be my position going forward as we spend a lot more time on the warrior and less time on whatever military equipment we have in the pipeline or whatever we're proposing, the multi-billion dollar this or that, first and foremost is that is the warrior. Now, let me, let me give you a, an example of that in, in terms of how, how does that unfold or how do you create that uh, in realistic terms. All right, so I'm going to give you an example of that, and this has been tried before, so I'm not the first one to come up with this. Uh, it has been tried before, and it's been very successful. If we, if we adopt a warrior-specific approach, okay, so the warrior can, uh, so our, our combat forces are populated by trained warriors that need to constantly hone and refine their skill sets and become better over time. And it's a long uh, build-up period to get to a point at which we can perform extremely well at the high end of the conflict spectrum. All right, so now I just said something that is crucial. I said that we need to get back to the high end of the conflict spectrum and start training to to perform at that high level. I think that's pretty much undisputed right now. I, I, I believe that uh, from what I can ga- gather, most uh, thinkers, most military planners, most historians, the list goes on and on and on, Certainly, most warriors will say yes. We need to we need to prepare for combat at the high end of the conflict spectrum, and that means that we're dealing with a near peer adversary. That's what it means. Okay. So, if that is actually the case, then then what do we do? With all of the in in my in my uh, experience and in my community is the is the aviation community and in particular the fighter pilot community. What do we do with all the fighter pilots that uh, occupy these frontline squadrons? Particularly, what do we do when the airplane is not ready for flight? Okay. Well, first and foremost is that is that a trained uh, experienced or or a military aviator, the first order of business for anyone who is flying military equipment, military airplanes, the first order of business is to get in the air and spend as much time as possible in the air. Okay, why is that? Because that's where that's where the battle is won. That's where uh, the the rubber meets the road. That's where we have to be better in every single f- way possible in an environment in which we are airborne. Okay, how do you do that? Well, we have we have a, we make arrangements. We do what is necessary. We make arrangements to make sure that our military aviators get a minimum of X amount of hours per month. It doesn't matter uh, so much what the uh, airborne vehicle is. What matters is that that the military aviator is actually in the air. Okay, in the air, it doesn't. You know, it could be, uh, it could be flying cross country. It could be in a transport. It could be in a business. It could be all kinds of things. It could be in a advanced trainer. It could be, uh, for example, I'll give you a hypothetical example, and maybe this will actually happen. Uh, the T seven is a brand new trainer that Boeing is now producing or will produce shortly for. 
uh, the U.S. Air Force, uh, and so let's buy a whole bunch of T-7 trainers, and and by the way, let's let's lease them. Okay, let's not buy them. Let's lease, uh, you know, like 500 T-7 trainers and give the T-7 trainer to every single tactical squadron in the Air Force and the Navy. And and if if you don't have enough uh, uh, tactical airplanes to provide um, uh, high t- high flight time for every one of the aviators in your uh, air wing, then uh, then the backup plan is to get airborne in the T seven trainer, right? So that's that's where uh, that's where I'm going. Okay, so we're going to take a look at at the mental skills. Uh, what are the mental skills that we need to do, we need to uh, pay attention to, we need to develop in our air combat uh, forces? What are the mental skills? Now, uh, we go, uh, right now, we're pretty much, uh, we pretty much stop at the, at the technical uh, the technological uh, doorstep. We go right up to the technological doorstep and we say, okay, we're going to teach our combat forces how to operate and maintain this highly sophisticated technological system that we have purchased or we have acquired, we have manufactured, we have produced, whatever. Okay, And that's about it. All right, do we go beyond that? Uh, that? Right now, we're not going beyond that, and should we? My position has always been we go far beyond just being able to operate in some form or fashion a, a weapon system or a weapons platform, if you will. We, we, we move into the domain of higher-order reasoning, we move into the, the domain of complex problem solving and critical thinking. And we treat it not as an afterthought. We treat it as a primary skill set that, that is superordinate to any set of skills that have to deal with actual operating the equipment. Okay, so the first order of business is the all of the superordinate skills, the decision making, the problem solving, the situation awareness, all of the all of the higher order skills that are necessary for the warrior in order for the warrior to achieve mission success. Now last show we talked about we talked about Masters of the Air, and this new—it's a new series coming out, isn't it? Is it—is it, is it going to be in January? Yeah, it's a new mini-series coming out, um, and it's about uh, the Eighth Air Force in World War II, uh, the the uh, uh, the air campaign over uh, occupied uh, France and Germany, uh, and um, what what these. Uh, American uh, and British aviators uh, were faced with problems that they had to overcome and the solutions ultimately uh, enabled them to succeed. Um, and what, and, and that, that was uh, the experience of that was learned and then lost. We lost that uh, somewhere along the way. We lost that. How did we succeed? We succeed by devastating the skill sets of the enemy, not the number of airplanes shut down. It was, it was, we, we <coughs> uh, eliminated or neutralized the, uh, the, air combat skills of the enemy forces, the skill sets. Uh, They could still get airplanes airborne. 
uh, with inexperienced pilots. That was always possible. And that occurred both both uh, in in both theaters in World War II. And it was exactly the same. All right. Now, <laughs> I'm not sure why why the historians haven't picked this one up, but but the experience that we had in in Europe in World War II and the experience that we had in the Pacific, particularly in naval aviation in World War II, were exactly the same. We destroyed the skill sets of the enemy air combat forces. Okay. They were still producing airplanes, but they had no one to fly them that was any good. And so it became... Uh, in in the Philipp Battle of the Philippine Sea, it became what was uh, uh, called by the pilots the Marianas Turkey Shoot. Uh, it was it was just a matter of just going up there and shooting down an inexperienced uh, uh, enemy pilot and his airplane because they just did not know how to fight. Okay, so. Let's get into this uh, higher order skill sets that are necessary in order for us to be competent warriors and succeed in combat combat, and win the war. What exactly does it take? Now, we're going to be listening to, uh, well, we have three, three uh, audio video clips to play, right? Okay, so... Let's go ahead and start, uh, what's the first one? The first one is, oh, okay, uh, it's, I gotta, I guess I need to spend a little bit of time uh, introducing it. All right, so this video audio is called the OODA loop. It is also called the OODA loop, but it's OODA, and that stands for Observe, Orient, decide and act this loop was created by colonel john boyd u.s air force very very famous strategic thinker probably and for most people would consider uh, colonel john boyd to be the finest strategic thinker that america has ever produced in modern times the ooda loop is a way for us to make better decisions faster it's a mental model and this is what should be addressed. This should be a centerpiece in our uh, advanced mental skill preparation and training, uh, the OODA loop. Well, we don't spend enough time on it. We, we don't, right? Why? I don't know why. It just not, doesn't seem to be very convenient for us. Uh, you know, we much rather talk about radar and stuff like that instead of, uh, first and foremost, let's get into the brain and mind of the uh, of the fighter pilot, and let us think like a fighter pilot, and let us take a look at uh, the the mechanism by which we can make better decisions faster. Now, why do we want to make better decisions faster? Well, the reason for it is very, very clear. When you begin to understand the environment that we live in, when you're a fighter pilot, uh, op training for combat at the high end of the conflict spectrum, one of our biggest problems is time compression. Okay, time compression. That's one of the that is the the title of this series that we're doing now for Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast is time compression. So we have to make good decisions. We have to make better decisions faster than the enemy. We have to overcome the problems, the enormous problem that we face when we're traveling at, traveling at very high velocities, we encounter increased time compression. That is just the just the uh, a, a it goes with that. By the way, the faster you go, the more time compression you experience. Uh, it just goes with the territory. And so, uh, how do we do that? All right. So we're going to be. We have three videos or uh, audio videos in the queue. The first one 
is called the OODA loop, How to Make Better Decisions. Let's go ahead and play that right now, and then we'll play the other two shortly. This is, uh, what, five minutes, a little over five minutes, right? Okay, all right, so let's, let's go ahead and play that now, and we'll play the others too as well, and then we'll talk about it. Military combat often requires swift decision-making, decisions that could mean life or death at any moment. This level of quick thinking and choice-making is crucial to gaining a competitive advantage on the battlefield and can even determine who ultimately ends up victorious. In The Art of War, Sun Tzu wrote that victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. Now I'm not necessarily telling you to take a 2500 year old quote as gospel, but there is something to bear in mind here, and that is success often manifests through diligent planning and effective action. In other words, victory, whether it's on the battlefield or in the marketplace, can truly depend on well-defined insights and strategy before deciding to act on it. So having said that, how can you start to make better decisions for yourself in your own life? Well, allow me to introduce you to the OODA loop. The OODA loop was developed in the mid-20th century by military strategist and U.S. Air Force Colonel John Boyd. The goal of the strategy was to create a model for rational decision-making in order to make the best choices in the shortest time. While this was initially developed for use during the Korean War, the OODA loop has become a mainstay for decision-making from business to sport and has often been depicted as a simple four-stage linear cycle. The first is observe. This is the data collection phase. It's the point at which you attempt to ingest all the information you can. At this stage, you aren't really thinking about how to assess or execute on that data. It's simply about aggregating the available information as well as separating the information which is relevant for a particular decision from that which is not. The second stage is orient. During the orient phase, you analyze the information you've collected. So whatever observation you've made is transformed into insights. Your data is analyzed, evaluated, and structured. Boyd believes this to be the most crucial stage because it requires you to have an awareness about yourself as well as whatever you're working on. The third stage is decide. Once you've analyzed the information that you've collected, you're likely in a good place to decide whether you want to act on it. This decision stage is about choosing which path or action would provide you with the most desirable outcome. And the fourth stage is act. This last stage of acting upon your decision consists of not just executing, but also evaluating whether your approach to all the other stages of the loop were right. This is what helps you make better decisions in the future, and so acting is never really the final stage of the loop. Instead, it's critical to you making faster and more effective decisions in the future. With the OODA loop, you can absorb information around you and interpret it within the parameters of the objective that you want to achieve. By going through each step in the loop and updating your decision based on real-time data, it becomes possible to identify structural issues develop effective strategies and implement solutions faster than you would otherwise. What I've learned from implementing the OODA loop is that great decisions are made not just for effective action, but also as a learning practice so that you can get better with time. And maybe that's why this model is so great, because it shows you that even if a choice you made was less than perfect, you can use these lessons to become truly great in the future. Now what often happens in most cases is people tend to get stuck on observing and orienting themselves over and over and never end up making that decision and going with it. So many of us often get caught up in wanting to analyze as many observations as possible so that we can come to an ideal decision before enacting it. But this theory states that one's ability to act quickly is what separates those who succeed from those who fail. You're not always going to have all the information you need, and so there will be times when you need to decide how much information is acceptable before moving forward. Mental models like this are simply a way of looking at and understanding the world. They map out our expectations for how the world works. There are bound to be variables depending on who is making the decision, but I think that the OODA loop does a decent job of considering that. In this case, the Orient stage is also viewed as an aggregate of our genetic composition, culture, and past experiences. And so it has a strong influence on the way that we observe things and it filters that information in order for us to decide and act accordingly. Which, as I said earlier, is exactly why John Boyd views this as the most important stage. The OODA loop has long been identified as a way to reduce reaction time and enable quicker and more streamlined decision making. This framework was initially created to provide an advantage of speed in combat, so bear that in mind that in everyday life it may not always be best to favor speed necessarily. 
Instead, I've used this method to become more comfortable with uncertainty in the decisions that I make and have a process that I can rely on if I need to act on something fast. So the next time you're in a position where you have to make a bunch of rapid decisions in order to give yourself a competitive advantage, try to use this four-step model to cover your bases and make the best decision possible in the shortest time. Thanks for watching the video. I'm curious to know what your process is for making quick decisions. How do you go about making tough calls? Leave your comments below the like button right down below. I'm looking forward to seeing you right there. Until next Okay, so uh, we're going to play uh, two more of this related uh, topic. Now, I want, I want you to keep in mind something here. Um, we never have the luxury of waiting for a perfect set of information to come to us. Uh, in the real world, there's always going to be elements of complexity and uncertainty. I say that often I say in my, uh, in my uh, talks and in my writings that complexity and uncertainty prevail. This is, the, this is the nature of the environment or the nature of the battle space. Uh, it, there is always going to be that. There's no, there's no, there is no perfect place. You're not going to achieve perfection. You're always going to encounter uncertainty, and hand in glove with uncertainty is complexity. If we're dealing with the high end of the conflict spectrum, expect things to be complex as well. So complexity brings an additional level of uncertainty and an additional level of, uh, of confusion to the activities that we are engaged in, in in this particular time and place. We call it the airborne battle space. Could be anything, but we call it the airborne battle space. Okay, so we're going to... Uh, do one more on the uh, OODA loop, which is O-O-D-A loop, uh, again, developed by Colonel John Boyd, uh, and uh, one, of, one of his great achievements, not the only one, by the way, he's also inventor of uh, maneuver warfare theory, but we're going to do another one. Uh, what is this called? Okay, uh, the O-O-D-A loop, a competitive decision making tool. Now, it, there will be some overlap here between uh, the three audio clips that we're playing, but that's okay. Uh, that, that's, that, you know, that, that was my intention anyway, because it, it bears repeating, because it is particularly important that we do so. Keep in mind, and I'm going to say this probably a number of times, keep in mind that we have to have a an agile mental process going on in our consciousness that enables us to actually take action when we are dealing with complexity and uncertainty as well as increased time compression. Okay, so let's do this second uh audio clip on the OODA loop. Here we go. A four-stage decision model, the OODA loop was initially developed to help fighter pilots win during air combat. The model was taught as part of a briefing titled A Discourse on Winning and Losing. The main takeaway was that to win, to beat the competition, you want to find an advantage, to be faster, to get inside or otherwise disrupt the enemy's loop. Over time, this decision model spread to other branches of the military and eventually application of the OODA loop made its way into first responder communities, sports, business, and other competitive fields. Going through each stage of the model, we start with Orient. While Orient is technically the second stage, when you understand Orient, then the other stages of the model fall into place. A passive interpretation of Orient is the direction you are facing. How you are currently oriented provides the window or frame you're able to look through. You cannot observe what is outside of your current orientation. A more active interpretation is to orient, 
to figure out where you are relative to some destination or goal. This is the equivalent of situational awareness or sense-making in that it is not only about direction, but about how orientation heavily influences or limits what can be observed and how those observations might then be interpreted. In the broadest sense, the orient stage is your current worldview, your current assessment of the overall situation based on your beliefs, your values, your goals, as well as your prior experiences and knowledge. The importance then of orient cannot be overstated, as to have a solid orientation is fundamental to winning. It is fundamental to survival. You don't want to find yourself out of position, lost, or worse yet, disoriented. In air combat, for instance, if you are not oriented correctly, then you are in no position to win. You can't shoot down the enemy. On the other hand, if you're in a positive orientation, then they are at a major disadvantage requiring that they spend energy and crucial seconds to try and reorient as to avoid being shot down. This same principle can be applied to other competitive fields. Having to retool your factory, for instance, to reposition your body, to develop a new marketing plan, or otherwise reorient to the competition or situation is most often costly in both time and resources. Moving to the first stage, observation is all about data. In air combat, prior to onboard radar and other electronic sensors, observation was primarily visual. It was a matter of scanning vast amounts of sky for black dots that then had to be rapidly interpreted as friend or foe, as relevant or irrelevant. To gain an advantage then is the ability to be first to observe, to connect the dots, to get more and better quality data that is timely. For example, illegal trading on stock exchanges insider trading is all about access to relevant information before it goes public. This early advantage then influences later stages of the cycle, providing those engaged in this activity the ability to buy or sell a stock before the general public has access to this same information. The third stage of the OODA loop is to make a decision. This is running through available options and forming a mental simulation or hypothesis of how to best gain an advantage or achieve a win. Understandably, what options are available are based on the previous stages of observation and orientation. For example, having observed an enemy aircraft, a pilot must decide between alternatives such as climbing, diving, turning to meet the threat, or running away. The final stage of the OODA loop is to act to execute on the decision you just made. This represents testing your hypothesis, testing the decision as to gain advantage or to win by altering the situation. Regardless of how successful, this action then takes you back to observation and the cycle starts over. Ultimately, the cycle continues until you observe having either won or lost. If you have defeated the competition or have been defeated, if you have shot down the enemy or have been shot down, it is over. The OODA loop is complete. Putting all four stages together, the OODA loop is yet another tool to consider adding to your decision-making tool belt. And as with any tool, you want to use the right tool for the job. With the OODA loop, it is a decision tool specifically designed to help you win in competitive environments, to help you come out on top, especially in situations where losing is not an option. Okay, so uh, we have one more to uh, to uh, play, but before we do that, uh, I just want to point out a couple of things here. Uh, keep in mind that this is not a linear process. This is a loop. It's a circle. It's a um, it's a merry-go-round, if you will. It is something that is continuously done. So it's not, a, it's not a linear start and stop process. It's a continuation of going through these, uh, going through the loop or these, um, these mental uh, or the cognitive uh, aspects of our ability to comprehend and to conceptualize. Now, 
I'm going to say something here that is probably not very well understood, uh, and um, uh, there may be some you know, disagreements uh, with respect to what I'm going to say, uh, but that's okay, all right? Uh, my position is that we're exploring this together, and we're just trying our, har- our best to come up with something that is actually workable in a real environment in which air combat or combat or competitive environment, if we want to even go there, uh, is in play. Okay. I think that the underappreciated but extremely important aspect of everything that we are talking about is to be able to conceptualize. In, in other words, to be able to create a conceptual model of reality, conceptually what is or will occur in some period of time in the future. It could be near term, it could be long term, but conceptually, why is that important? That's important because, con- because conceptualization is not temporally dependent. It's not time dependent. Uh, to look at the world uh, through the lens of uh, literalism, uh, and I also use the, use the word or term literal, Uh, that only gives you a certain amount of information. It does not give you the complete picture. The complete picture needs to be created conceptually at a place in your mental um, mental, uh, mind space, in a place that we call conceptualization. It is a higher-order reasoning area of thought and so once we go there once we move there then we can we can then operate the ooda loop from a conceptual standpoint and we can look at things conceptually we can look at alternatives and options and and what are the most likely responses from the enemy if I do such and such a thing at this time? And, um, okay, I got a note from my audio engineer. Time is getting short. So let's go ahead and play the Sun Tzu uh, audio clip. Sun Tzu, the art of war explained in five minutes. And then we will... I'll finish up after that. Here goes. In the age of bloody civil war, 2,500 years ago, a Chinese military commander, strategist and philosopher emerged. His name, Sun Tzu. After successfully defending the state of Wu against its neighbour Chu to the west, a book formerly known as Master Sun's Military Methods was born, which has later become known as The Art of War. The Art of War is the most influential treatise on war ever written, consisting of 13 chapters, each of which is devoted to one aspect of warfare. It has shaped the way in which conflicts have been fought for thousands of years, from the Japanese samurai to the Napoleonic War. Not only has the book influenced military commanders and generals all over the world, it has had resounding effects on politics, sports and business to this day. The art of war is of vital importance to the state. It's a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence it's a subject of inquiry which can on no account be neglected. Sun Tzu has a holistic philosophy that if you follow correctly and study thoroughly, you will be victorious. Sun Tzu says, avoid what is strong and strike at what is weak. Sun Tzu is a strong believer that winning the war with as little unnecessary combat as possible is the key to true victory.
Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting, and the key to doing so is to know your enemy well. If your opponent is arrogant, pretend to be weak, so he will underestimate you. If he was relaxing, attack and give him no rest. If his forces are united, separate them. Sun Tzu is essentially saying that if you know your opponent's weaknesses and how to exploit them, you will never lose. So at dawn, the hopeless Athenians do the unthinkable. They attack. They attack the weary Persians as they disembark their ships on shaky legs after a month at sea. They attack before they can establish their war camp and supply their soldiers. Sun Tzu says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. During the mid-1960s, a war took place between the North Vietnamese Communists and the United States of America. Instead of confronting the Americans head-on, the Viet Cong had a different idea in mind. They used unconventional guerrilla warfare tactics, which included hit-and-run strategies. This proved very effective against the much larger military of the Americans. It's more important to outthink your enemy than to outfight him. The Viet Cong forces were inferior to the Americans in both man and firepower, so guerrilla warfare tactics allowed them to inflict significant damage while keeping their casualties to a minimum. They also had unparalleled knowledge of the terrain. This included a vast network of underground tunnels, allowing them to evade carpet bombing and escape the enemy. The terrain was also laced with various booby traps and landmines. Even though the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese were heavily outarmed by the American superpower, they were still able to defeat them as they truly understood Sun Tzu's philosophy. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. This philosophy can be seen in the World War II invasion of Normandy, known as D-Day. The British created several fictional units of troops stationed in Scotland who were ready to invade Europe through its northern regions, in particular Scandinavia. They then used several misinformation techniques to persuade Hitler that 350,000 of these troops were primed to attack. Radio chatter in Scotland lit up with talks of these troops preparing for an overseas assault, and many of these transmissions were made easily interceptable. Allied spies who had been able to infiltrate the Germans reported these developments as well, reinforcing their legitimacy. These spies also took photographs of planes and tanks posed for invasion, but these were actually blow-up models in most cases. All this caused dozens of German divisions to go up to bogus locations and wait for an imaginary army to show up, whilst important battles were fought elsewhere. This method of dividing enemy forces was also employed to a greater extent on D-Day itself. Soviet forces kept around a million of the German forces busy on the Eastern Front, whilst the Allied invasion occurred on the Western Front. This tactic of dividing the enemy is one of Sun Tzu's key philosophies and allowed the Allies to achieve victory and eventually win the war. Thanks for watching. Okay, so uh, the key to this, all of this, is uh, a phrase that was said uh, that I often repeat as well, which is outthink the enemy. Okay, in other words, in almost all cases, warfare is is uh, a, a mental uh, exercise more than anything else. Um, and to be able to outthink. All right, so let's let's turn this into the actual uh, engagement within the. In, in my case, it's going to be the airborne battle space. So, what exactly, what exactly is going on? Or what should go on in the airborne battle space if we want to succeed in combat uh, against a near-peer adversary operating at the high end of the conflict spectrum, which basically means uh, this is a formidable enemy that we are facing in the airborne battle space. The first order of business is is if the enemy expects you to enter the airborne battle space and immediately engage his forces in some kind of a combat engagement. Don't do it. Okay. In other words, fake out the uh, the enemy. Do not engage immediately. Now you may want to engage, and I'm suggesting that we do engage, but we don't do it immediately. 
we send in some kind of a deceptive uh, forward screen uh, with in my, in the in my optimum battle space plan, we send in our fastest fighter aircraft, the ones with the highest uh, uh, or greatest Mach number capability. Uh, we we would uh, we would send in. For example, uh, 104s or 106s, or uh, or a uh, a group of uh, F-8 Crusaders. That's the airplane that I flew, which is extremely fast. We could put uh, put upgraded engines in the F-8 Crusader, which they did, and we could get up to um, in the vicinity of Mach 2.5 and send them in, but they just sort of like blow through. And it confuses the enemy. The enemy says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, where are these airplanes going? Why did they show up? What is happening? And and then you come in with your other forces that are better equipped with uh, with more modern weapon systems. And then you, you perform your engagement uh, in the time and place that is more favorable to you. All right, so my audio engineer has just uh, gave... You gave me a one minute. Did you give me a one minute signal? Yeah. No. All right. She said forty seconds. So I got to wrap this up in forty seconds. All right. So, what are we talking about? We're talking about outthink the enemy. We're talking about this is a this is a mental game, if if you will, or a uh, a, a life and death struggle but it begins and ends in the mental plane or it begins and ends in your mind space. What is occupying your mind space? What is occupy, What should the mind space of the warrior look like if he is going to succeed in combat? That's the big question. All right, another Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast. Thank you for listening. We will see you all next week.